0: Hello, I'm Neve Brannigan and welcome to the Irish Film London podcast. You're joined with just little old me today, no Jerry, unfortunately, so I won't keep you too long because we have a really fantastic episode for you today. I do apologise for my September chill. I don't have my normal radio DJ voice on, but nonetheless, the show must go on. Nothing major to report on my part this week in regards to cinema trips, but in relation to Irish film, some really great news for the team behind FOSCA, which is Irish for shelter. It's been selected by IFTA as Ireland's entry to the Academy Awards 2022. So congratulations to all involved and best of luck. In news with Irish Film London, filmmakers have gotten their notifications this week to say if they'll be involved in our big festival in November. Our program will be announced in October, which is very, very exciting. On this week's episode I'm joined with actor Orla Brady and Joe Lawler and Christine Malloy who are the writers and directors of the film Rose Plays Julie. All I will say is a word of warning is that there's a few slight spoilers in here along with chats about the tough subject matter of sexual assault. Enjoy the episode. Welcome Orla, Christine and Joe, onto the Irish Film London podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you all on. First of all, I would love to say congratulations on a fantastic film. I'm so delighted that it's now getting the proper cinema release that it deserves after being on the festival circuit for so long. I actually saw Rose Plays Julie in the BFI Film Festival. So that was two years ago two years now. Ago. Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. Yes, exact, almost exactly two years ago. So it's definitely been on a bit of a journey, which I'm uh, really looking forward to chatting about. So let's kind of go right back. So Christine and Joe, how did you guys kind of? How did Rose plays Julie kind of first come to life on on page and in your guys's
1: mind? Well, I think you go, Joe.
2: Okay, I mean, I think actually, mostly for us, um, and Rose plays Julie is no different. It, it actually doesn't begin on page but begins through walking and talking. So you can kind of, uh, there, there is a kind of a fear of the, the blank computer screen sometimes. Um, I I don't have that as much as Christine. Mm-hmm. Um, however, you you know, I certainly wouldn't attempt to kind of put something on or a paper uh, until you have some sort of thinking done in, in process, mainly because screenwriting, unlike, Uh, novels or poetry is not really a literary form I mean they're they're sort of they can often be very ugly documents to read um unlike a novel um and I don't particularly even like reading uh, screenplays (laughs) sometimes I do but often don't at all uh, because they're quite architectural in form as opposed to literary and so I think what we tend to do and what we've become a little, I think, a little better at is working on the architecture. And we do that through walking and talking from where we live in East London down to the Thames or it could be up in Epping Forest or it doesn't matter where, really. But it's the act of walking and talking to try and develop the, the architecture. And it's only when we feel the architecture is sufficiently developed do you begin to commit an outline on a page, which then might go to two or three pages, which then might go to a treatment of 10 or 12 and then what we tend to try and do is try and keep developing the architecture till around 30 35 pages, and then we feel ready to write a screenplay. So there's a lot of architecture in, in place there. And I, I think for something Rose plays Julie, it was more intricate than our debut film. Our debut film is more like uh, an Irish country bungalow in Rosscommon, whereas Rose plays Julie might be more like a, a Rem House. Well, maybe not, maybe our next film would be more like that. This is more like a Mies van der Rohe say, I'm going to stop that metaphor now, but- um, Please do. It becomes do. more, <laughs> it becomes more intricate, basically. <laughs> and I, I think that's really how it evolves. It, it evolves over those kind of stages and steps, um, uh, which is good. And, and the other thing is that you're trying to commit to something in terms of content uh, which is the other part of writing it's not it's not all about the story it's, it's really also about how you're expressing the story but you know you're going to be with something for you know a number of years so it better have some resonance and power for you so that that was important as
1: well mm-hmm. And if, if I just add to that in terms of what Joe was saying the story there were a couple of things that were on our mind. Um, one was to center a story around a, a young woman. Again, because we had done that with our first film, Helen. And in a way, Helen was our launching pad to Roseface Judy. And what we wanted um, to encapsulate a story about a young woman who's confronted with something from her past that shakes her sense of herself. And we decided to locate that in a story about adoption or an adopted child it's not a story about adoption but an adopted um, young woman who is trying to discover who her birth parents are and also the impact of um, violence through the generations and over the years so there are two starting points and um, you then have to just slowly build the story because it's not based on something that actually happened you've got to dream and imagine it up as you know the development process unfolds and it takes different twists and turns and maybe sometimes it goes down a kind of a a blind alley or you've taken a wrong turn and you've got to rein it back and refocus clearly what it is that you want to do I think the difference for myself and Joe like other writer directors is that we're always holding on as well to a sense of the film that we want to make in the end. So if you're a writer and you don't also direct, it might be deeper into the development process when you begin to think, you possibly in a producer, like, well, who will we get to direct this? But we are the directors. And so when we're writing, we're always thinking about the kinds of film that we like to make and that we have, um, you know, been working on over you know a number of years now so that's that's a different thing as well and sometimes you might make you know um some shorthand aspects of the script where we know what we mean or we know we can see us um because we've worked together for so long and we write and direct um, so yes it's a it's an really interesting process and um we tease that out as Joe said over time and we do a lot of talking it's what we you know we find it very helpful I think
0: uh, as you said there Joe like reading screenplays sometimes can be such a pain and that's why I agree with like treatments I think are so important with like the building of the world and the constructing of the characters because you know when you're reading a screenplay and then you have the directions and then you have you know cutaways or montages and then you kind of get taken out of it it doesn't kind of flow as much so yeah I can definitely see what you mean by you know really the core of it is like just creating that world first and foremost and then kind of putting in the directions or the, you know, uh, after. So what was the timeline? What was the kind of the timeline for, for construction and, and writing it and getting kind of a, a shooting script ready?
1: Well, there's this idea that if you're releasing a film, you should have your next script or your next treatment in your back pocket, you know, when you first, you know, screen your current film. No that's pressure. Really, I know that's never worked for us, it never has. For one reason or the other, um, however, we did when we um, screened our f- um, second feature film, Mr. John, at the Galway Film Flaw back in 2013. We at least had the germ of an idea, and we so we had our very first meeting at the Galway Film Flaw in 2013, and it was with um, Keith Potter, who was at the Irish Film Board at the time and um, Chris Collins, who was at the British Film Institute, the BFI at the time. And Chris has very sadly subsequently passed away, but he was, you know, somebody who's a real supporter of our work and we had worked with on Mr. John. So they were both very keen to encourage us to, you know, run with the idea. And it took us until 2014 to actually put everything in place to really launch the development process And I would pick up on what you said just there, Niamh, that for us, treatments have become more and more important important, and we find ourselves going back to treatments. Sometimes in the past, as we're learning our craft, because we learned about filmmaking through making films, we didn't go to film school. You know, if there was a problem, we'd go back to the script. And that can be really, really difficult because scripts are quite unwieldy as, you know, um, as documents but now our, um, we, we tend to go back to treatments instead. So if there's a big issue, go back to the treatment and figure it out there and then use the treatment to go back to the script. And it's a, I agree with you, like for listeners who don't know what a treatment is, it's a, it's a document that really doesn't contain dialogue. So it plots out the film more or less scene by scene, but without the dialogue. There might be tiny snippets of dialogue that might help the reading, but basically it's without the dialogue. So you can just focus on the mechanics of how we move from one scene to the next. And you can also keep a much clearer eye in the overall architecture, as Joe said, because sometimes it can be really hard to keep an eye on that when you're dealing with a, a document like a script.
0: Definitely. So then Orla, what was your kind of um, introduction to the film and how did you uh, come across your character, Ellen?
3: Well, I'm just listening to this, I mean, as uh, from from the lads here and as I have done before, I marvel at the investment of, you know, of time, the, 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 the number of years it takes to develop a script. And then even if you were just coming on as directors, there is that whole thing of investing for, you know, a good year in advance easily. And compared to that, you know, we're we're performing seals, aren't we? We just kind of pop in and, you know balance a ball on our noses and you know what I mean you can do it quite quickly now I we balance them yeah, very well very well great. I hope so um, <laughs> I did very much fall in love with this script as soon as I read it I mean if we if we take Joe's you know architecture idea it's you can look at a sort of suburban imitation you know modernish house or, or you can walk into E1027 and know that Eileen Gray considered every curve and every you know, shaft of sunlight coming in and every piece of furniture placed within there. And I felt that about this script. I felt it was the real deal. It was considered um, there are, you know, deceptively simple moments in, in 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 a lot of the conversation between people here. It, it seems very ordinary conversation, but it is true and 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 true to character. And that's unusual. I just absolutely fell for it you know and this was before I met them I then you know rather fell for them <laughs> when I met them and um and it's been a very very lovely thing for me to have done
0: so then back to Christine and Joe like what was the the casting process like then was it kind of was it a, a no-brainer or was it a bit of a like a real kind of search to really find because your three main players are just absolutely phenomenal so what was the kind of the process of that like
2: well, yeah, they, I, I agree. They were f- phenomenal. Um, we're, we're really bad at casting um, I, and, and ideas. And it, it's a very irritating thing in, in, in the script process, development process. And when, a question you get often asked way too early is, you know, let's talk about cast. What, what thoughts have you had in mind? And we're going, yeah, ask me that question after you finance the fucking film. And uh, it's like, don't ask me like two years before. Sorry, mm. i going to swear there. That's okay. <laughs> uh, don't ask me two years beforehand, because they're nonsense conversations. Uh, it, it will ultimately come down to really what it should come down to is you're, you're fully financed and you're, you, then you're ready to approach people. Other than that, it's really speculative and it's become even more and more difficult now. And it's a, it's a, it, it feels to me like a bit of a racket. Um, you know, people being uh, hunted down, not because you want them, but purely because they will bring some financial value to your film, regardless of whether you actually want that person or they might, might be the most appropriate person to play that role. In our case, um, we Aidan was very straightforward insofar as we were looking for a man in his fifties and we happened to know him. And we thought, well, we we could hunt around and, and see if there's other Irish men in their fifties, but okay, maybe, maybe maybe not. We like really working with Aidan, and we think he would have been really good in the role, and and uh, he was. And so that one was fairly straightforward. Um, Anne uh, was quite different because we you know we don't really keep an eye uh, on who's who. I'll be I'll be honest with you. We only when we go and see a film, it's often because who's made it and not who's in it. Uh, I'm not, I, I, apart from someone like Marlon Brando or M- Marlena Dietrich, perhaps, I wouldn't be necessarily going driven by who's in a film, more what's the film. Um, and so our casting agent, Emma Gunnery, uh, who was very instrumental in both Anne and Orla actually, uh, was very helpful in guiding us. And so you go through the process of getting a limited number of really, really great young Irish actors, female actors, to send in self-tapes where there would be a scene that they would do. And you shorten that down to about six, eight people who you meet in person and redo the same scene again, uh, this time on camera, and and get a chance to meet people. And uh, I think in that process, it was fairly clear to us that Anne had this particular quality of uh, youth and innocence, uh, combined with a certain malevolence or darkness about her, she could just switch very easily, or contain the two simultaneously. Very hard to do, and um, and that wasn't a reflection. And you're always thinking this other actor who was also very good, maybe is just that you know eight nine years older and has lost some of that kind of quality. That's not a reflection on their skill. That's just something that comes with the humanity of somebody. Um, So you're always kind of worried about saying no to somebody because actually they really are fine performers. So our great message is I hope those actors get the roles that they deserve because there's an amazing crop of young actors coming through. And in the case of Orla, um, that was more complicated because we had obviously known uh, about Orla um, and kind of felt, well, you know, uh, I think she may be out of our reach, and we were thinking of um, maybe in, in another direction. And Emma says, "Well, let's just you know try at least let's let's uh, let's have a go." Um, and of course, normally what happens is you will make somebody with Orla's reputation an offer, and I can't remember how it worked out. But we started by having a conversation, and I guess the conversation, I mean maybe Orla doesn't remember it like this, but we felt slightly uh, like we were auditioning uh, for Orla. So, uh, Mm -hmm. and as opposed to the other way around, I'm I'm maybe being a little bit um, flippant about that, Mm -hmm. but not really. I mean, I do think it's really, really important that people get to sound each other out and get a feel for each other. Do you want to work together? Mm -hmm. Uh, That would really be important. I mean, if Orla turned out to be, uh, as brilliant as she is in Rose plays Julie, Julie, but was absolutely a nightmare to work with. Uh, we're very impatient people. I mean, I'm a fucking nightmare. Um, if somebody, if, if somebody's really fussy, I'm thinking, please don't do this. You know, we've only got 22 days to shoot the film. And so it was a great, 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 great conversation. And we had seen all this work, of course. We had looked at uh, other things that she had done. Um, and we, you know, we just felt well. If we can get Orla, then that would be incredible. Mm. And uh, and we were looking lucky enough yeah. to get her. But again, it's it's Emma. I can't underestimate Emma's really key role in that mm. process, in introducing, bringing ideas, and navigating the road uh, yeah. to to get the script to those uh,
1: actors. Particularly, yeah. I I would um, add that it's a step by step process for casting but all, all three main characters. Of course, we can talk to Aiden directly because we've worked with him before. So that's, that is a no brainer and it's simple and straightforward. Um, But it, we couldn't make assumptions that he'd want to do the part because, you know, Aiden regularly gets cast in these kind of villainous roles and maybe he just wouldn't be in the mood for us or want to do another one. Um, one day we'll go to him with a really lovely script. He gets to play the nice guy and I've seen him play the nice guy and actually fact one of the first um, feature films we saw Aiden in where he had a, a leading role um, he plays it's, it was a kind of a, a love story it was a, um, a romantic film it was it had a, you know like edges to us but you know he played the, the lead um, love interest and he was really good in that film and um, anyway that aside, so but it was a bit of a no-brainer, but then he just had to want to do us, and he luckily for us, he did. And as Joe said, with Anne, we went through a particular process. But I think for us, the most interesting process is when you are thinking about casting somebody like Orla, an actress like Orla, where the whole thing gets very tricky, and I don't know, it's like a weird chess move. Um, because then you have to commiss. And as Joe said. I think it'd be weird for us, and I don't know whether all feels the same, but I'm assuming it'd be weird for her to sign up to something. If you've never, ever talked to the people, you're going to be, you know, um, giving yourself over to and going on a, you know, a journey which can be exposing because you're, you know, you're laying something on the table with And, um, you know, we, and so it's the tricky thing of like, well, how do we get to talk to her? Because we weren't talking to anyone else. And um, how do we get to talk to Orla without it seeming rude? Because um, we should be just offering her the part, which is what we wanted to do. Well, I, I will add to
3: that and say that, that it was absolutely the right thing to do. You remember if we met it? I mean, it feels like pandemic times because we met on Skype. Yeah, um, because exactly. I had just got back from Ireland and I was I was over in California. So we had to meet, you know, like this. And I, I remember thinking I assumed you were seeing a few people. I mean, no. whether you were or not, I don't know. But um, and it I would it would have been odd with this subject matter with with this film yes it would have been strange to not know the people involved like exactly that needed to to I knew the script was good and I really really wanted to meet you guys and see you know what your sensibility was your what your hopes and dreams were and and exactly that get a feeling for how we would ultimately work together and um and I remember it went on a long time I remember coming off that call very happy I thought Oh, I really enjoyed that. I wonder would that be what filming is like. So,
0: yeah, that that really that really all does make a lot of sense, because as you were saying, Joe, there is this kind of culture at the moment now of just offering parts or getting someone on board to get money or, you know, all this kind of stuff, whereas, you know, really, it should just be a chat first and foremost. And I think especially with this film, with the delicate subject matter, you know there's also a comment in there on for some creatives that it's okay to say no to some work if you know if that maybe would would affect them in a certain way or you know they mightn't be able to to fully give themselves to that particular story or that kind of thing so yeah that does that does seem like the definitely the right path to have gone down of just having that chat first and and also sometimes I think maybe with offers you know, if someone doesn't want to accept it, you know, it's it's always going to come across as in and as a negative, do you know what I mean? As opposed to just sitting down and and having that chat or whatever. So that definitely seems to make sense. And also, as you were saying there, Joe, about Anne, just watching her, needless to say, Aidan Gillen is fantastic. But Anne, I just was so blown away by how grounded she was mm. um in you know in such a tough I can only imagine such a difficult role to kind of part to come in and out of every day coming on to set but so grounded and and uh, but so vulnerable at the same time um which I it's really I haven't seen before I found that really really really, really refreshing yeah um so I'd love to kind of chat about the characters then because I really really enjoyed how Ellen was um an actress herself I thought it was a really great choice that you know she wakes up every morning and puts on a mask in her real life and in her job in a way as well and that that kind of comment maybe on on PTSD and you know that kind of survival mode and this was this is Ellen's kind of that's her survival survival mode and then You know, Rose has another a different kind of survival mode. So, um, Orla, what was that like playing, you know, being an actor, playing an actor, but then also having those levels of kind of uh, of underneath of because everything is quite measured, feels quite measured and quite kind of contained with Ellen. Uh,
3: Yes, she is somebody who who has who is very in control of herself, who is who has made decisions that um, that don't delve too far into the emotional, if you like. Um, I mean, I will say that that you don't necessarily put on a mask to be an actor, you frequently at its best when it's working it, it you reveal great things about yourself because you do use something that is true to you in service of a certain role, however, of course. You are saying, you know, you know, these works of fiction, you know, don't resemble any living person. You know, there's deniability there, if you like. So in that regard, yes, it can be a mask. Um, And that is something that I thought was beautifully placed in the script, that this is somebody who has constructed a certain life. um, And 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 denied, of course, a great Truth denied uh, this thing that has happened, this trauma that has happened to her, and because of that, there's there's an element to her that I always thought was brittle. She she's she's speaking of controlling people. She can be quite controlling, certainly of herself, and um, maybe of those around her. But it it takes this this extraordinary, you know. Uh, girl this this child this this young woman to appear to to break through that and and to allow Ellen to become whole again I just loved that arc as well and the effect that Anne Scully's character has on her
0: absolutely and I think there's a really interesting um, kind of hint at the the generational differences between Ellen and Rose, and and how they both deal with the issue of sexual assault, which I think is really important to document and portray. And this film does it beautifully. Um, and like that, as you said, Anne's character does kind of awaken this bravery um, within within Ellen. So was that quite important? I guess this might be kind of an all rounder question. Was that did. Was it important that you wanted to portray the kind of new younger generation, especially in Ireland, um, you know, of that kind of bravery and, and speaking up and and that kind of uh, theme?
2: I mean, uh, well, I'm sure Kristen will will uh, add to this as well. But I mean, our dwarf is 18. And so only a couple of years behind um, Anne at the time we were filming. Um and of course, when we're we've when she was a baby or a toddler, we'd been watching films with her. So we'd sit down, we'd you know we'd watch whatever. But it's true to say that when Molly's there watching a film with us, what she brings to bear on it, uh, it it's profoundly different experience. We will look at material now that we've seen. You know, we'll introduce it to films from how many years ago. But her critique of it comes from now, a young person now. It's very different. And then you think, we learn a hell of a lot from her in the process of that. And you begin to critically look at films in a new way. And she, she's, her BS threshold is very low with a lot of films that we thought, yeah, I think you might like this film. We haven't seen it since we were, you know, your age. And you look at it and you think, Jesus, this is outrageous, this film, for its uh, political, sexual politics. And she can see it immediately. I'm thinking, God knows what we were thinking back in the like, 70s and early 80s. So I do think that generation, I know Orla has talked about this previously, that are, let's see if we confine ourselves to Ireland, for example, happens here as well, but certainly in Ireland, it's very different now. And, and uh, the future looks a lot better and stronger because of... Uh, a political uh, engagement. And I think it's really important that a younger generation uh, can do the teaching and the leading and are, and are doing that. It's mm-hmm. funny because when we were very young, myself and Christine got married in a registry office and we were in our very early 20s. And this was back in the mid-80s. And you, I mean, it may sound trivial now or it sounds unlikely, but back in the mid-80s, if you got married in a registry office, You're in for, that's confrontational. Mm. And my dad, this kind of carry man, says, well, I'm not going to go to that wedding. And I I think, well, you don't fucking have to go to that wedding. (laughs) You're not getting married. (laughs) And uh, of course he did go. And you, I always think the children are far stronger than the parents. And young people should never, ever forget it. And they sometimes do forget it. And our generation have often forgot that. And I think this current generation are plugging into their power and they
1: are far more powerful than they realize. Yeah. And
2: but it, it almost, realize it.
1: It, it takes, it almost, it, it goes through steps and phases and it might take that long because we're the children of our parents' generation and um, I would say that my parents were incredibly supportive and open to being challenged and then that's just about luck. Because lots of my friends had parents who weren't open to being challenged and wanted to keep the parent-child relationship in a place where children don't feel confident to be able to say what they feel and what they think and what they believe in and to push and to challenge. So they're not giving the space, not giving permission. But I think that our generation now who have children um, are very... Um, open to given space and also these children will take the space anyway even if you're not open to us we're going to take the space because there's enough awareness and openness in society now about those kind of key issues about you know sexual identity gender politics um, you know me too all those different kinds of issues that are really really important on a very fundamental level to who we are in society and issues around abortion, divorce, equal rights in marriage. I mean, Ireland has been very, very progressive, but we would a, a lot of catching up to do. And you, can't, you, can, you can see it from generation to generation. And I think coming back to our film, we always saw Rose as the catalyst. She's, she's the person who has to come back. It, it needs to be resolved between these three characters, the child, the mother, and the father. And that's the film that we wanted to make. We didn't want any outside agencies coming in or third parties like the justice system. We wanted these three characters to work it out between them. And she is the one who challenges. She's the one who finally allows Orla to be open and honest. And she's bottled this up, kept it hidden, suppressed it for such a long time. But you could say somewhere, deep in the back of Ellen's mind she knew that this daughter of hers would come back and she just she didn't have an abortion which she could have had um she had the child and maybe she knew that one day this child would come looking for me and finally be able to relieve myself but the relieving of herself is really complicated because she's also then sharing a horror and a trauma it's not a simple easy story it's one of you know, a story about sexual abuse and violence. And so she's going to have to burden this child. She's one to, who maybe she also um, hoped would remain unburdened in her life. Um, and because Rose does come into Alan's life, this is what happens. And then it's about how we go from there.
3: And, and I would add to that and say, one of the things I loved um, in the script was how un and uh, she was at the beginning, how unsparing of the feelings of this young woman were. She hadn't accepted her as her daughter. She hadn't connected this young woman in front of her with the baby that she let go. Remember, she doesn't she talks about the child and says she didn't even hold her. She just she just wanted to get this child away to a good life. And she, she was hoping that it almost she almost thinks of the child as it will have a good life. But she has she has never connected her own feelings. So I remember thinking it was shockingly harsh that she tells her that information when they meet first. It it is bound to have a really harsh effect, you know, it's, it's bound to hurt this girl. And she 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 does that. It takes the getting to know it takes the effect of of this girl, beautifully realized by Anne Skelly. I mean, my goodness, you know, she she is so affecting because as mentioned, she does have this ability to have kind of, you know, that that pig iron, if you like, that stays with it, that grit, that determination, I'm not going away. But within that, you see this enormous vulnerability and your heart goes out to it. So what very much happened because of their relationship, it wasn't a given that it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a transformation you know Ellen isn't very likable at the beginning it it takes a while for her to become the whole person that she is and to acknowledge her motherhood absolutely and I think
0: that that's another reason why I found this film so refreshing was because you know in a way Rose represents a trauma for Ellen so the idea of kind of you know welcoming her with open arms and i'm sorrys and i love yous is you know it's it's not really necessarily realistic because it's it is she is a representation in a way of something that was so traumatic and that you know ellen has worked years on kind of suppressing and and getting on with her life but orla i read that um yourself and aidan didn't meet before the um uh, kind of confrontation scene in the car yeah, th-
3: this pair that are in front of us now decided it was a great idea for uh Aidan and myself to, to to meet in the scene as the characters and mm. fool that I am I went along with that no not at all I, I I I was intrigued by the idea I didn't know what it would give us but it might give us something you know I mean you know, we're actors we act you don't need to have some Dimension or reality to a thing, you're, you're, you're imaginatively entering a scene. But it did intrigue me, especially as I knew that that moment would be most terrifying for Ellen, even if she was determined to do it. She was determined to do it in her in her new found ability to protect her child, to be a mother, to to, to be that sort of lioness, if you like. However, it could only be terrifying to confront. Um, a person like that. But also it, 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 the, the, what had happened is, has kind of fossilised and become bigger and more monstrous over the years, if you like. And the more you don't confront something, the more it can become a thing. So, of course, we did that. And I, you see it. Well, I don't know if the cut is in the film, but certainly we shot it. And I had never met him. And I walked across a field and got it, you know, and the cameras were running, got into the car. And for the first part of that scene, she doesn't look at him. He doesn't look at her. She's looking straight out the, the windscreen and talking. And at a certain moment in the scene, I turned and looked at him and I actually felt my heart, nearly jumping out of my chest because, of course, he's a wonderful actor. He was playing this character beautifully. And it was and it was quite terrifying somehow. It did. It did give a lot. Um, Joe will now tell <laughs> about the fact that a few days earlier, the effect was slightly ruined because I was in Bagot Street um, in Tesco and I saw Aidan ahead of me two people ahead of me with his little recycling bags kind of putting groceries in and i thought oh he looks so sweet
0: oh. <laughs> the
1: illusion was ruined he, was broken. he recycles <laughs> he recycles he's lovely yeah. Yeah. <laughs> best, best laid plans
2: i think uh, like one of the things that came out of that like a, a few cutaways were used of that uh, first shot which that dialogue is meant to take mm. four and a half five minutes on the screen which is a lot actually ran for 15, 16 minutes. And subsequent takes were always that long as well. So what you're watching is uh, an editing to bring 15, 16 minutes down in real time because people are, actors are trying to find a rhythm into the edit, which is what <clears throat> you see on screen now because it's it's very hard. I mean, we're, we're accused enough of uh, being too slow. So if you have a, a dialogue 16 minutes long, will be uh, hung from the gallows somewhere. So, it, but in a sense, what, what we're watching uh, is people in a very confined space. So it's a controlled environment. It's not like a meeting in the field. That's a difficult thing uh, to do, but you can set up a camera. People are sitting in the seats. So you know things, everything will be in focus. But what was interesting to watch was just the rhythm of it. So when the head turned from Orla is on Aiden, and they both of them didn't look at each other until that moment, it sort of naturally found its way at that moment, or at least Orla had a point at which now might be the moment or around this moment I might look. And that was in that's an interesting thing to let the scene just play out like that because I think it was all the more powerful. And the subsequent takes had all the tension and energy of that. So I don't, you can't really do it for every scene but you could do it for some scenes and i'm glad we did that for that particular scene because it was the only scene possible because it's the only scene that they share and i think it had huge merit to it uh and we only did it two three more times up until the point when something dead something dangerous happens um and then of course that becomes a bit of a choreography you know what i mean Mm. that that you can't do because you have to do close-ups and blah 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 but the um yeah, it was very exciting to watch that. And then uh, because we knew that dialogue should have and will have a lot of power, which it did do.
1: I, I was just sorry, I was just going to add that you know it's not often that a, a schedule, because schedules for low budget films are pretty tight because normally you've got so few days to shoot. We had 22 filming days, which isn't a huge amount to get through the script that we had. Um, but sometimes it just offers you a little gift that you know you can then try and grab hold of and use um, to some kind of good effect, which is what I think the schedule did for Orla and Aiden, Because um, Aiden's last day was Orla's first. The only scene they're in together is the scene in the car, and then the schedule gave us another gift because um, the first scene with Anne and. Aiden, actually the first scene to be shot was the scene of the museum when they meet in the museum. And of course, um, Anne and Aiden have never met each other before. It's a very intense encounter. It's a pivotal encounter between the two of them. And so that also had this very interesting energy because you know they were meeting each other for the first time and it's this very particular scene. So I think sometimes you can get lucky with a, a schedule. It just allows even though everything's out of you know order and it's not happening as it happens in the script and it might feel really like, oh my God, they're going to do that scene. It's the very first scene we're shooting and it's such an important scene. Like, And we won't have the chance to reshoot if it doesn't go well, but it can also then just bring something, which is this energy that, um, you know, that the scene might just really, really benefit from. And I think both the scene between Orla and Aiden in the car and then the scene between Anne and Aiden in the museum really benefited from just that look of how the scheduling worked. It worked in our favour very much. So
0: Absolutely. That's so interesting that you said that because I, I always find that the best place for uncomfortable chats or discussions is the car because you're both facing forwards. you don't have to look at each other but yet you're still in quite an intimate kind of setting and I guess as well it's just interesting that you said that about this uh, scene with Anne and Aidan for the first time in the museum is also kind of somewhere that you could be sitting besides beside someone with both you know feasibly looking forward for for a long period of time as well and not having to have that eye contact or or that connection so Mm. that's that's kind of a quite an interesting parallel between the two um but joe you just commented there on um your uh you said that you those comments on you guys being too slow and like obviously as a style like there is a beautiful style within the film of kind of lingering shots and daydreams and stuff and I, I kind of see that as as a viewer I just kind of see that as a chance for the audience to kind of just kind of take in everything that's happening or even kind of come to their own narratives or, or conclusions um, but is there kind of a, a, a thought process behind that kind of style of shooting?
2: There, there, yes there is and there isn't I mean there isn't in as much as we, we're, we just intuitively uh, work work in that rhythm, and you know. So therefore, you know. For all you know, this isn't an actioner. You know what I mean? If we did a Marvel film, it would be very ponderous and slow Marvel action film. Um, so maybe not. Maybe we're the wrong people for that. Of course. <laughs> and uh, so, in in that sense, we do see the cinema space as. Uh, a, a, a space to reflect a little bit more, to change time, and not not to quicken it up, but to slow it down. And maybe a lot of the films we like have a lot of that in common. Um, and that's films from from around the world. And so, and over time, so we are naturally drawn to that. And but it is interesting how some people will make will. Make uh, the declaration that the film was too slow. Not that not that they would be humble enough to say I found the film too slow, uh, but as stated as a matter of fact. So if you were to ponder that a little bit, you would re- realize what a ridiculous comment that would be. So if you were making a uh, a comment about um, you know a Bach uh, concerto, you you wouldn't say well yeah he, he that was too slow. You're thinking, well, of course, Bach didn't make that too slow. It's That's the rhythm that it's in. You can't say Beethoven or any uh, composer or Billy Eilish, that song was too slow. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? It's too slow. You found it too slow. So just bring yourself into the equation a little bit more. But it's amazing how some people, thankfully, most people don't agree, uh, but that some uh, people will find things too slow. And it's almost like the most provocative thing you can do these days. It even doesn't matter about the content. The form is the thing that will really kind of upset people. And one of the greatest um, thresholds you can cross is to uh, test people's patience in terms of making a scene or looking at a landscape for a few seconds too long. And people get really offended by that and you think, wow, that's incredible. Here's an amazing scene, and it's beautiful to look at. Why, would, why don't you want to look at it? And I think partly it's because they're thinking about the action of the story and not how something's been expressed. And they're thinking that how it's been expressed is not important. They just want to get on with the story. And I'm thinking, well, the story's part of it. In my mind, it's not even 50% of it. But let's say it's 50%. We're asking you or inviting you to think about the other 50% of uh, what that experience is like. And I don't know what you can do about that. I mean, there was an old uh, thing that the faster the Internet becomes, the more impatient people become. Mm -hmm. A study was a study was done. It's not me just making that up, but a study was done about people's uh, rhythm and time. And, you know, people don't go into churches anymore. Uh, during the daytime or uh, e- even at all. Now, one, the one thing that a church could do is, or, or meditative spaces can do is actually to slow down. They don't ask you to quicken up. It's quite the opposite. And you might fancifully say that cinemas are not unlike churches. They're places for to reflect and think and to get out of time, go into another time zone, another time space. Maybe that's a dreaming kind of environment. For some people, as I say, thankfully not most people,
1: but for some people, that's just too much for them to bear. I mean, I think the problem with um, the cinema, equating cinema with the church is that people go to cinemas for all different kinds of reasons. It might be escapism and for entertainment reasons and not necessarily as a place to, you know, um, a reflective place or a thinking place. That's the kind of cinema space that we like, but. One thing, when we used to make theatre all these years ago, there was a a New York theatre maker called Richard Foreman, and I remember something that we held onto that he said was creating a space for accidents to happen. And the thing that I like to think about in relationship to film is this idea of creating a space, and it's really a space with the audience. So, Niamh, when you say that you enjoyed the time to, to look and to stay with an image... That really makes me feel really, really happy because that's what we're trying to do is offer audiences a, a space to linger and to hold on and to, um, you know, think and to be with an image for a little bit longer. Because sometimes I get really frustrated when I'm looking at something and I think, why did you move on that quickly? Could we not have held on just a tiny bit longer? And we've often said, maybe Joe said this already, but I had to nip out really, really quickly. Apologies for that. Um, that. You know, the the Oscar for editing is not necessarily for the best editing. It seems to me it's for the most editing. It's like chop, 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 chop. And you know, film is like that, as Joe said, you're being pushed forward by the story and it must keep going forward all the time. And we're not encouraged to pause.
3: Uh, And I would add to that by saying it's it's um, and I hope this is borne out for the audience, but certainly the experience as a as an actor is that you uh, if 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 a pace is allowed to slow down, you have much more opportunity to to be in the character, to just sit as Anne and I did, just nestled into it. And 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 you felt you just could become in those few moments, who these women were, where they were in their story, and there's there's a there's a kind of pressure to to get on with the story, you know, cut to the chase, move forward with the narrative, and um, even within a scene that's frequently there, that means that you can get slightly panicked into performing. I mean, you can still perform it pretty well, but it's a different um, experience than than being. That takes a little bit of time, and they very much encourage that, so that was wonderful for us
0: absolutely i especially with the with the story and the subject matter just having the, those extra few moments and just letting those effects kind of settle for, I imagine, as an actor and for the audience as well. Sometimes actually the most beautiful parts are in the little lingering shots after something is said or, or before something is said.
2: But, but Just sorry to inter- interrupt mm-hmm. me. But I mean, on, on that, in terms of cinema, I mean, I think about cinema now because of the pandemic in a very different way. I am worried at first, I have to confess. And I do think it's a, it's a space that's under duress. And you think about film history. I mean, there's a wonderful film by Chantal Ackerman called Jean Dielman. Mm. And it's a very, very simple film. It's a woman at home going through her domestic chores for the day, day after day. and uh, But the tension is mm. riveting and it's nerve-wracking by the end of it because the tiny little details and shifts and changes. Take, but. When she's going to peel those potatoes, she's going to peel each one. But as she peels them, and you, it, it keeps changing. But you've got to get into it. And if you don't give yourself over to it, it's not going to happen. So the same could be said for music. If you don't get into the music, you'll then convince yourself, I don't like um, trip, trip-hop. Um, or I don't like a certain kind of music. It's just... You, you're just putting up blocks there all the time. And so similarly, you'll come in. This is my taste. I don't like curries. No matter what you do, I just don't like them. I'm thinking, taste can change. They, they can, they're, they're not fixed. They're, they're highly mutable. And you just need to open your mind a little bit more. And often, the, the people that we come across who are not got a preconception, they could be an older man or woman who came in, wanted to just try something out, can be very very open and sometimes it's people with a bit of an attitude about it can sometimes be the most uh, locked off um but yeah a, a rhythm is an endlessly fascinating conversation and it's one where we're you know <laughs> endlessly uh, being attacked over but what can I say it's it is what it is
0: well I think it's very refreshing to stay true to your own style and your own vision like that it's very easy to kind of conform so I do commend this film for that as well and I hope more people get to see it now that it's in cinemas, but I would like to ask Orla because you've worked on so many different projects in loads of different mediums in throughout your career and I imagine you would learn something from kind of each project uh, along the way so kind of what takeaway uh, do you have from your experience with Rose Post Julie. Uh.
3: I don't have some wonderful kind of golden piece of wisdom to impart. I wish I did. What I know for me is that this felt very much like my happy place as an actor that I, it's, it's one of the, um, I mean, the, the role I enjoyed that's a given, but one of the happiest jobs I did, one of my favorites, I should say over the years, because there, there you know, there, there are, there are roles you do. There are, you know, things you join that, you think I wasn't actually that was difficult for me so I had to push myself to get that. I'm not sure I did. Um, there are others that you simply don't enjoy. You think I, I yeah no, this isn't exactly what I thought it would be, especially with when you do something that's TV because you you take a role on a proposal if you like. you've seen a script and there's a certain promise of how the character will play out. And then frequently that can be disappointing. You know, you sort of become a girlfriend or a wife rather than being more fleshed out as you would hope to be. Um, but there are a few films that I have done over the years, and this is very definitely one of my happiest. So that's my takeaway for me.
0: And Christine and Joe, what would... You, well, I guess kind of same question for... I was going to say... Um, which I'll also ask, what would you love audience members to take away from this film? But first, actually, what did you both um, learn or take away from from this film?
2: Uh, I, I, I can't remember. It feels so bloody long ago now. I'm thinking, huh? Uh, <laughs> you know, even watching it, I'm thinking, God, again, you know, so it's it's it does feel a, a good while ago. I don't know if I can answer that question. I don't know what the the takeaway w- would be. Certainly, the idea of a treatment. Certainly, the idea of um, uh, a shed. The art of a schedule, mm. uh, and and certainly investing more in characters uh, and giving more space and time to that. Um, the the other big takeaway, really, that in terms of audiences, we just which is the one that's triggering me more in terms of what you said, is I in the current climate because it's 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 a kind of a habitual thing of going to the cinema you kind of you have to go to the cinema in order to retain the muscle memory to go to the cinema yes. and when you stop that you you're out of shape and you don't go ever back to the gym so to speak Mm. and so my big worry is that we're on a threshold of losing the 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 memory that we once ever went to the cinema so if nothing else I would love for people to go to the cinema and critically then when they're in the cinema looking at something like Rose Plays Studio on the big screen be glad that they did it.
1: Mm. Yeah and I would just add that I mean we were aware that we're taking on tricky material, um, dark material, difficult material. And we wanted to find a a fresh perspective to to try and come ask these questions and issues about, you know, imbalances of power, abuses of power, um, sexual violence in a a way to try and, you know, think about it differently. And, you know, one of the things at the heart of um, sexual violence is the imbalance of power, the abuse of power and and consent, the question of consent, and we want to try and arrive at that question in a a different way, and even to get bloody well Peter Doyle, the, the biological father, the rapist, the last thing he's got to grapple with is this question about consent or the last thing he's confronted by is the, the thing of consent That what he didn't offer um, Ellen he just took from her not listening to her saying no and he tried to take from his biological daughter and didn't listen to her as she said no I don't want this um, now he was given he was offered consent now in my mind, two wrongs don't necessarily make a right, and we could have easily just gone for the revenge plot where we have this great moment where, you know, he's murdered in cold blood or slashed, And but Ellen's character isn't a cold-blooded murderer. She didn't even really want to go out there and kill him um, and, and found that incredibly difficult. She wanted to protect her daughter um, from what her daughter might have done Um, but in our exploration of us you know the consent was given by her and um, you know or by him she allowed him and visited him and he gave his consent and it was inevitable one way or the other that he was um, you know he needed to be put out of his misery but that is a cinema story it's not real life and we're not saying that this is the solution, it's the solution that we came to. And I I guess we would hope that people would engage with us. Um, It's been interesting to listen to all the different responses to our film. Um, Some of them a little bit crazy, like um, somebody wrote something like, you um, you know, since when would a man allow this to happen to him without fighting back? And I think they're missing the, point there of Peter Doug He's a narcissist and narcissists need the world that they've created to remain whole and um, once it falls down and begins to fall down and they're revealed to be who they are or confronted with who they are there's a very vulnerable moment for them we wanted to exploit that where you know and it happens regularly and um, Jeffrey Epstein in prison committed suicide it, the game was up sorry Orla
3: no, I just wanted to add to that because it, because you mentioned narcissism and one of the th- you know there is a, a there's a lot of new research on narcissism and I, on narcissism, and uh, it, I think it's referred to as narcissistic wounding now and 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 you know the the fact that it's compensation for a great kind of self-loathing. And because, I mean, I, I can't believe that in the case of Jeffrey F. Stein, he just seems like a monster, an absolute monster. In the case of Aiden playing a character, because he is a, an actor who is able to show great complexity, I could see the monster and I could see a, a lost boy beneath it. There was a complexity there and I felt there was a void and he was in pain. And I'm very much, you know, a, a, in the character, I saw that ending as a mercy killing if you like by consent you know it it began as an act of protection of the child but that very much he he asks to be let go he is in pain um and i think that that says something about the writing it also says says something about Aidan playing it but i i felt i saw those things there
2: it's exactly like because somebody had a problem with a man doing this if you look at the last uh, moments in the third man with Orson Welles and Joseph Cotton it, it's almost like an identical playing out of the same scene um, and yet nobody would question it. I mean literally jo- Orson Welles realized the game is up it's over what does he do he turns to Joseph Cotton nods and then accepts his, his death and, and in the, exactly the way that uh, Aidan and Orla play it out but you will never hear uh, somebody complaining that that uh, gave up without a fight. It was, it was an outrageous piece of sexism that this, uh, creep would have said something like, you know, you know, if it was me, I would have fought back and there's no way, but I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, you're a moron.
0: Well, I think I think it's very clear when when you create kind of discussions like this and the fact that we've been able to talk about this film for this length of time shows that it's it's so meaty and there's so much in it. And I really, really do encourage people to go and see it if you haven't already and i would just love to thank you all for coming on to chat to me so remember rose plays julie is in cinemas now so definitely go and check it out and thank you all for coming on to chat to me and i wish you the best with this film and for future successes and hopefully we will see you guys at irish film london very soon
1: thank you so
2: thank much you, it's
0: thanks. been a thanks. pleasure thanks thanks bye bye And that's it from us here today. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Jo, Christine and Orla for coming on to chat to me. Don't forget to follow us on social media to keep up to date with all things IFL. We're on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and Facebook. A huge thanks to Culture Ireland and the Immigrant Support Programme for being such great supporters of ours. Definitely check out our September shorts that we have for you guys on our website. And while you're there, please do consider becoming a member and supporting us in all that we do. And lastly, remember Rose Plays Julie is now in cinemas across the UK and Ireland, so definitely go and check it out. Thanks for listening.